Hello, and thank you for joining us again on our Gilmore Girls podcast, Coffee with a Shot of Cynicism. Gilmore Girls is the coffee, and we're the shot of cynicism. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Eleni. And this week we are discussing uh, episode 20 of season four called Luke Can See Her Face, which, uh, you know me, I'm bad with episode titles. I was confused of, wait, why is it called that again? And then as I was watching, I'm like, right, that's why. Foreshadow. You didn't? You didn't know what the reference was about? Like, I hadn't seen, like, I, you, whenever I'm watching this not for podcast purposes, it's usually before bed, and I'm not really in tune with the episode title. I'm just, you know, next and play. So I'm not, right. like, I don't really pay attention to it. Whereas when we're analyzing, obviously, we have to have our thinking caps on, uh, <laughs> as they say in elementary school. <laughs> so I was like, wait, why? That's a weird, that's a random title. Why is it called that? And then as I was watching, it all, it all came back to me. Yeah. Um, this is one of those titles that, you know, sometimes you're like, where the fuck did they get that title? Yeah, like, like us, like us when we didn't know why the dance marathon episode was titled. Okay, well, that, but, I was, <laughs> but I was thinking of the time where they went to the auction for like the rare manuscript thing. Yeah. And it was like the library of Bhagavad, like whatever the fuck it was. Yeah. This one is very obvious. <laughs> okay, well, you know, my no, brain is mush. <laughs> I'm saying once you watch the episode, it's very obvious. <laughs> and it, it's very literal, like Luke can see her face. But anyways, um, in terms of writing, how would you rank this episode in, in season four? Um, not as not as strong as uh, the last time we saw Liz and Jess. But mm-hmm. in terms of like the, I guess the Danes Mariano family dynamic, uh, but right. this one, this one is pretty strong in terms of like I would like I, for pop culture commentary, it's definitely strong. And I made some notes that I wanna I wanna bring up about Ooh. that. Yeah, I just I kept thinking the whole time I was like, it's amazing how much really goes on in this episode. Um, yeah, that's a lot. At first, I was like, is this. Like, I knew, obviously, I know when my husband appears. I know it was, there was going to be, I know there was going to be some stuff to, to, to get into with why he was back this, this time. But I was like, is there anything else that, uh, of, like, of note that happens in this episode? And there is a lot. Yeah, so I, I, obviously, I know this as the episode where Jess comes back and there's a lot of dynamic, um, you know, not just with Liz, with his mom, because they didn't, listen, last time Jess was on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole storyline with him and Liz and, you know, that argument that he got into with Luke, um, you know, we even said it then, like, he's completely justified in his feelings and the fact that we just keep letting Liz skate by without acknowledging the fact that she was a really shitty person. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, which we, we stand by our opinions, ladies and gentlemen. And I would um, also, I would also argue that this episode in particular, as we've mentioned uh, you know, in our jumping ahead segments before, but this episode in particular uh, really shows how much the adults in Jess's life failed him. Absolutely. And I have a ton to say um, about the scenes with Jess in them. But, you know, it, it, in terms of the scenes with 
There's no Liz and Jess in this episode, but, like, the subtext is there. Oh, so, so much subtext. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to talk about in, in terms of that. But, yes, I agree. You kind of forget. You, you remember this as the episode where Jess comes back. And you kind of forget that there's a whole bunch of other shit going on, too, that's just as important, especially um, for later on in the season. And, and it has implications for um, the rest of the the show as well. So you know, I make a lot of references. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I was going to say I make a lot of references on this podcast to the movie Ricky and the Flash. I mm-hmm. wouldn't I wouldn't describe it as like one of my I don't know top 5 favorite movies, but clearly it's up there because I reference it all the time and I also it's one of those movies that I quote lines from in, you know, out of context and people are like, "What?" Uh mostly yeah. my mother and I'm like, "Okay, hey, we've seen the movie. Go go along with it." Um and mostly because it comes to mind a lot with Liz and Jess and their uh, their dynamic and their fa- like their broken family dynamic, I guess. Um, little crash course on Ricky and the Flash. Uh, you know, Meryl Streep plays um, a quote unquote rock star who left her who left her Midwestern family to go out to Los Angeles and try and make a name for herself. Didn't really work out that way, but she ended up staying in Los Angeles and has like a bit of a garage band that plays in a just just a local bar and long story short her family her her daughter needs her help back in um indiana i think it is and so she goes back but like there's a whole read there's like so much so much subtext of why she doesn't go she doesn't visit and everyone just assumes because oh she's a bad mother she left the family that's that um but there's a scene in particular where um meryl streep and the actress who plays her daughter is actually her daughter in real life mamie gummer and so they're, so they're sitting in a coffee shop and her daughter's super depressed. Her husband left her. She's kind of in a very bad mental health space. And um, they're eating this like uh, this pastry. I think it's called a crawler. I've never I've never had one, but I've heard of it. And um, Meryl Streep says, oh, you know, it's hard to get a good crawler in California. And her daughter, her daughter claps back saying, mm, yeah, I have to give up, ha- must have to give up a lot of things to become a rock star. She's like, mm. uh, yes, Crawler's really least of it. Yeah, Linda, that was the subtext. So anytime someone says subtext or like my mom says something like super obvious, I'm like, yeah, Linda, that was the subtext. <laughs> oh, Jeffrey. <laughs> so in this case, uh, anytime, you know, Luke or Jess kind of makes a pointed comment about their broken family i'm like yeah linda that was the subtext yeah well um do you want okay i have to save my thoughts because we're going to try and do this chronologically because we always get ahead of ourselves we do um let's just start from the beginning (laughs) laura it's the aftermath of lorelei breaking up with jason right and the opening scene is that famous scene where a cat shows up on her doorstep and she's freaking out because she thinks that the cats are coming to get her because she's <laughs> going to be a crazy cat lady all her life. Um, well, I think that's unrealistic for a lot of reasons, obviously. Um, first of which, not being that, you know, cats just don't sense when uh, spinster, spinsterhood is arriving. I but... don't know, cats are intuitive little fuckers. <laughs> they are. But uh, it, to me, uh, Lorelai and Rory in particular have never struck me as cat people no never pet people in general no obviously because from the what the first season we learn when there's that little 
puppy drive in the in the town square and yeah. <laughs> Rory's telling Luke all about the pets that they've killed. She's like mm, the Gilmore girls are not uh pet friendly. No, very much not so. Um, but cats in general. But um it's interesting to me what Lorelai says. She calls Rory because she's in a panic. Um and, you know, she's going on and on about how the cats know that I'm no longer in a relationship, that I've done it again. I chose the wrong man. I'm never going to find love. And I'm like, that's not at all the assessment of your relationship that you should take away, you know? Um, yeah, especially since, as we've pointed out several times, we're just knocking you all over the head with it. Uh, Lorelai and Jason's relationship was the strongest, most adult, mature relationship she's had. So it's just, it's it's kind of like a bit of a you know, one step forward, five steps back for Lorelai, where she's like, okay, going back to her immature uh, bullshit. <laughs> well, I don't know. Ooh, okay. So we said last week that it was really, Lorelai was really forced to make a decision between her parents and, her, and a really great relationship. Um, and I, you know, we, we had, we'd said that maybe season one or season two, Lorelai wouldn't have been able to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, because she wasn't emotionally mature enough. And then this time, here she is in a really fulfilling relationship with a man who clearly really loves her, and she cannot be with him because mm-hmm. of circumstances that are outside of her control, right? Like, she wants to be with him, clearly, but she cannot. Um, yeah. So for me, the whole thing is just like, you didn't choose... I don't... Her, like, freak out maybe was warranted because she's a little bit stressed. You know, she she thought she was in a great relationship. But the freak out and the whole thing surrounding I chose the wrong man. No, you didn't choose the wrong man. You just had a really unfortunate thing happened where your parents, you know, like it or not, were involved in your relationship and had to do something like sue your boyfriend <laughs> or your boyfriend had to sue your parents kind of thing, you know. Um, yeah, it was like circumstances beyond her control. Exactly. So like it wasn't her fault. And here she is kind of, I don't know, blaming herself. I don't know. She's just feeling sorry for herself, which I get after a breakup um, is very easy to do. But, um, you know, the assessment of the relationship, in my opinion, when she's telling Rory is all wrong. You know? Yeah. Like, that's this, obviously. It wasn't your fault. <laughs> no, it's not her fault. And she's kind of in the... I don't know, kind of a bit of like a wallowing stage as she taught yeah. her, her daughter. Like, um, not to say she's completely despondent and is in bed eating ice cream, but I think she, especially I think for women, like you can't help but blame yourself, even if you were in the in the right in the right choice, making the right choice to end the relationship, whatever for whatever reason. It's like, oh, what? Now I'm never gonna find another man, and the cats are here. Like, okay, yeah. let's take it down a notch. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's, oh, I don't know. I think you tend to blame yourself a lot when oh, something yes, like this. You and I know that more than anything. Is <laughs> and we're just programmed to think everything's our fault. Yeah. You know, it's just like, it's. I think it's just easier to blame yourself instead of saying, yeah, this fucking family of mine, <laughs> you know, that's why yeah. I can't have nice things. Yeah, and like, like I said, it's. Yeah. We know as the viewer, it's circumstances beyond her control, pretty much. Mm. But, like, especially speaking as a type A control freak, I can confirm that 
it's easier in my brain and you're going <laughs> to rational thought aside. <laughs> um, it's easier to blame yourself or take the, or just take whatever blame is in the universe and put it on yourself. Because if it's, if it's on your, if it, you're putting the blame on yourself, that's, that's something you can control. So like if there are circumstances in the universe that you can't control and that makes you uncomfortable, anxious, any other adjective of that nature, as it does for me. Um, it's easier to just immediately turn inward and say, why did I do this? What, what could I have done differently? Like any kind of any kind of thought like that is just comes immediately to me in those situations. It's like that way I can control this and say that. I made the wrong choice. That's why this happened. Or if I had only done this differently, this would have happened instead of what actually happened. And ultimately, it's just you're you're driving yourself in circles because what what could have happened, you didn't have any control over that, and that's that. And it's very freeing to <laughs> acknowledge and relinquish that control and be like, it's not my problem. This happened, and that's that. It, it'd be like that sometimes. <laughs> yeah I think also like putting the blame on yourself in this scenario is much easier I don't know I think because she's done so much maturing emotionally I think it's easier for her in this case to blame herself and say like my parents really screwed me over yeah um you know she doesn't want to really go there she knows she has I think in my in my mind Lorelai right now is saying like there's no point in really blaming my parents at this point you know it is what it is be like that sometimes like you said (laughs) but yeah anyways it is what it is like we said but all that to say she's really freaking out and then she also has this added stress of the inn um almost being open getting to the final stretch of the inn and we see her leaving herself 25 messages as michelle says and he's not very happy um <laughs> have you ever done that by the way left yourself messages no i haven't but it's not the first time i've seen a character on television do that if as i've referenced another thing a thousand times on this podcast if you are familiar with the new adventures of old christine the pilot episode begins with her leaving herself a bunch of messages for the next morning because she can't fall asleep. And as a, you know, like a working mother, she's just constantly thinking, thinking of everything she's not getting done. And um, it's, it's, it's interesting to me that you like would leave yourself a message to me. I would just let it drive me insane. (laughs) Well, that's why you're insane. No, I'm kidding. But um, I either, when I can't sleep, I don't call myself and leave myself a message, but I either email myself Yes. Or I uh, like set a reminder on my phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's happened to me where I've set like 46 reminders because <laughs> uh, I'm so stressed. So I feel I feel her in this um, scenario. I'm sure in the age of iPhone, she would have just left herself a bunch of reminders. Mm-hmm. But back then it was let's leave each other messages. And Michelle basically is the one who has to listen to the messages. And Michelle is not feeling very loved because he's sitting on the de- on the floor. He doesn't have a desk. He's upset. Um, <laughs> I mean, I would be too. Really coming <laughs> yeah, I know. But the end is really coming along. It's like I said, the final stretch and you can, you know, you can see it. You know that it's going to be, as a viewer, you're watching the show and you're like, okay, well, the inn is going to coincide with the season finale. You know, we're going to put a nice little bow on that storyline. Mm-hmm. 
um, Luke comes to take a tour of the inn. Yes. Lorelai invites him. And Suki wants to set Lorelai up with this guy named Shell. Shell the poultry guy. Shell the poultry guy who is, in my opinion, gay. <laughs> okay, well, um, you're not wrong. I, you, at a first glance, that is uh, the vibe that I get from him as well. Um, I don't know. I'm just saying, Shell, you're putting out strong homosexual vibes. Like, to me, he and Tobin are very similar. I was going to say that. I was like, they found the same exact fucking person. They found a Tobin lookalike. Not lookalike, but like, personality, like personality-wise, they're very Tobin-esque. He's very Tobin-esque. Yeah, and I don't, and I don't blame. I kind of. This is another moment where it's it's easy to be angry and frustrated with Suki because there's so many times throughout the whole show where she just doesn't know what her friend needs. It's like, yeah, she broke up with Jason however long ago. We don't know how long it's been. Do we know how long it's been between like the last scene from last week and now? No, but I can only imagine, you know, she's talking to Luke after and she says, I just broke up with somebody. I don't think it's that long ago. So maybe like a couple of days, a week at the most, maybe. And Suki's like, ooh, shell the poultry guy. Let's get lo-. I'm like, fuck no. Read the room. I was, read the room and read the gay vibes, Suki. Okay, okay. well, <laughs> that's another story. Listen, I think Suki's heart is in the right place. But I mean, like you said, yeah, read the room. I don't know if the, I don't know where I stand on this, like, getting over somebody. Part of me thinks, like, you do need time to grieve a relationship, especially one that ended through no fault of your own. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, because when there's no, when not, when neither one of you did anything, it's hard to kind of be mad and say, well, this is why we broke up, um, like you were saying before. But, you know, so a relationship like that, you need time to kind of grieve it a little bit. Um, and yes, I agree with you 100%. I don't know what Suki's thinking. Um, like, I'm, oh, I'm just gonna set him, set her up with our poultry guy. Why not? Shell seems like a stand-up man. What the fuck, Suki? Ugh. Especially since the only Shell that comes to mind when you say that is a name is Shell Silverstein. And he, yeah, that I was... know that's <laughs> yeah. And he gets away with it because he's a famous author, okay? Shell the poultry guy? Not so much. Not so much, Shell. Shell Sossman is his name. That's a terrible name, but anyways. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think Suki knows what her friend needs in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, her heart's in the right place, but I don't think it's it's warranted. Um, obviously, Lorelai is not having it. She doesn't want anything to do with Shell Sossman. So she pretends that she and Luke are special friends. Um, and she she's kind of dropping major hints to Shell that she's not interested. Yes. Um, do you think, so that whole conversation then that Lorelai and Luke have, Lorelai is telling Luke that she just broke up with somebody, she's not ready, she hates dating, Luke tells her at least you have a kid, she says at least you were married, I'm going to die alone, like this whole conversation that they're having about relationships. Do you think that's what sets Luke off to then go to the store and buy his self-help books? Um, I think it's a combination of that and the scene in the kitchen where she <laughs> refers to him as her special friend. And even though it's like awkward and looks like, okay, what, like what's going on? I think maybe something just clicks in him with that, with those two conversations combined with the fact that he's now aware 
that Lorelai just ended a relationship, a serious relationship that, you know, I'm guessing she was pretty invested in, <laughs> obviously. So um, maybe he's thinking, that, like, maybe not now's my chance, because, like, you know, buddy, you've had a lot of chances. But, um, but I maybe... About that today. Have they, has he had a lot of chances? I know there's scenes in season one where they're kind of giving each other longing looks and everything. But I was also thinking this is pretty much the first time that they're both really single at the same time. Because in season one, she gets to get, well, she starts, she sleeps with Christopher again, and then she has Max. Mm-hmm. And Rachel comes back. Then in season two, she's pretty much engaged for a while. And then I would assume you don't want to make a move on somebody who just called off their engagement. <laughs> um, and then she kind of runs back into Christopher's arms. Then in season three, he meets Nicole and she's dating Charlie Swan. Right. You know, like, it really is the first time where he knows for a fact that she's not with somebody. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess what I meant by he's had a lot of chances is, like, is from the, like, the point of, the point of view of a frustrated audience member who has dedicated four seasons to this, you know, to these longing looks and shameless flirtations. It's like get a room first of all and second yeah, no, <laughs> seconds like i'm not gonna say lorelei could have because we know lorelei wouldn't ever proclaim her love in that way in, in terms of you have, to, you have to be mature enough to make that move i don't think she is at this in this case so i think the the ball would have been in luke's court so to speak in terms mm-hmm. of just you know saying like hey and but like there, i'm saying there was chances where he could have said you know like for example uh, after Rachel left, and she and Max were engaged for four episodes, let us remember. So, like, he could have given it a, given a little bit, but of course, then Christopher comes back, the virus that he is, it's just, like, annoying. But I'm guessing if we, like, put some realistic sense into it, you're right. However, I would think, as an audience, as a viewer, I'm like, just proclaim your love and get it, like, get it over with. Yeah, so part of me thinks that, like, the fact that Luke is now going to get, um, you know, he, he he knows what he wants finally, and that's Lorelai. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's going to do everything he can to kind of get her. Um, part of me thinks, like you, that it's that conversation that kind of spurs him on when they're talking about, you know, how hard dating is and, you know, you have to find somebody. And, and in his head, I think just something clicks. He's like, well, I've already found the person. She's right there, you know? Yeah. Um, and I also think it's like a combination of confirmation from her that she just broke up with somebody mm-hmm. and that she's also fed up. Yeah. And that the fact that like he jumped into a wed- a marriage with somebody that he was never really sure about. And I think in his head, he's like, I just wasted all this time with Nicole. And like, I have to start all over kind of thing. But here's Lorelai, who I already know really, really well. Mm hmm. And I already have an established relationship with, you know, because I think there's two parts to this. I think there's a part where he's just like fed up about dating and, you know, being lonely Luke. Yeah. So that conversation where everyone where where Laura is like, you know, it's super hard um, to date and find somebody to spend your life with, whatever. I think part of him is like, yes, it is hard and I'm lonely. And then there's the part where, you know the tape is saying whose conversations are never annoying. And then he's like, Oh fuck. 
<laughs> so I, so for me, I don't think that when he goes to get those self-help books, he's necessarily thinking of Lorelai. I think probably she's in the back of his mind. But I, yeah, don't I, think, he, I think he's just like trying to get himself in order. And then only when we get to the do you see her face part, is he like, oh. I do see her face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's quite, I don't think he's quite there yet at the beginning when he's in the bookstore. I think at that point he's seriously just thinking like I'm lonely and mm-hmm. I just spent all this time on a marriage that I thought was going to work. But like, what the fuck was I doing? I wasn't even living with her. Yeah. And then, you know, the rest of it is more or less um, him just, I don't know. Is it wanting to communicate better? Um, I don't, it's hard to say because Luke, as we know, is just a stubborn curmudgeon who needs a bit of a reality check sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think he's, I think he's also lived his, clearly lived his life in a world of toxic masculinity and gender roles where he's uh, stuck in, you know, the, the assigned masculine gender role. And we, I think we see that in this episode in particular, when he obviously goes to the bookstore and is all, and he's, a, he's a prude too. So it's, it goes both ways but you know like he's in the bookstore and he's can't even show andrew the 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 title he's like what you 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 think i brought my own porn in here to buy like that that whole interaction was annoying because it's like luke no one gives like of course no one cares but also stars hollow where one's gonna well that's what i was gonna say it's like unless you've lived in a small town you don't know that no one cares right yeah Uh, so like you know no one cares and like and when i say no one cares i mean it's like like <laughs> like you're an adult we don't like you can do what you want but at the same yeah, time like yeah, there's still gonna be maybe like lingering lingering looks or judgment so um all of that to say I think Luke is kind of beginning to dismantle the gendered notion of self-help is uh, like a feminized thing where only like it's not something like men of his masculine cal- so-called masculine caliber you know indulge in so I think by going out and buying it and listening and you know inferring its information he's like oh this actually works and I think that this I think this this episode in particular and <laughs> next week when we see Jess reading the manual I think it's yeah. a I think it's a really good example of uh you know straight white men kind of allowing themselves allowing themselves to better themselves and not like not judging themselves too harshly for it you know what i mean because i think yeah because like we like i know for a fact there's several straight there's like countless straight white men i'm sure who do better themselves and are like committed to doing that well like in the privacy of their own home like hide under their covers and never tell their friends or their family in fear of being judged because that that you know notion of self-help being only for women apparently or whatever it's like not like self-help that doesn't fit into the masculine gender role so it's like that immediately will cause like a a look of surprise and or judgment so it's like they might be doing that but in the comfort of their own home and hidden from their you know hidden from their family or their the people they live with and it's and just in general I think it's always important when we see uh men define their gender roles 
Yeah, no, for sure. I think that moment where he, he at the end of the episode where he gives just the book. Yeah. Or the tapes or whatever. And he goes, here, I don't need them anymore. I think that's a, a moment of incredible growth for him. Because mm-hmm. he, so he did this workbook, whatever. And he's like, listen to these tapes. And he had the courage to finally go and ask Lorelai out. Which, by the way, we'll talk about because I have questions. Mm-hmm. Um but I think, you know, going from don't touch my stuff, you know, because he's scared that Jess is going to discover that he's reading a self-help book to saying, like, here, you use them. I'm done. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I think that's a really big moment for him where he's allowing himself to kind of be vulnerable. And I don't know if it was just because it was Jess. So why not be vulnerable with Jess? They just had a conversation or if it was really him being like, there's no shame in it, especially since it works, you know? Um, so I so I definitely agree. I think it was definitely a moment where Luke showed some vulnerability and, sh- like, it, like releasing any shame he felt over, you know, so, so-called indulging in self-help uh, media and passing it along to Jess. But I think it's, I you know, to play devil's advocate, you know, the tortured term, we're supposed to be retiring, um, to play devil's advocate... It's interesting that he kind of only feels comfortable apparently giving Jess, passing along the the tapes and the books to Jess after he pretty much put him down in the diner after the diner scene after the bachelor party jumping ahead. Like if we just looking at that final scene where he gives them the tapes, like the last time we saw them together, they were in the diner talking about their lives in an open way they never really had before. So that's another sign of growth and vulnerability. But Luke kind of also, you know, said, uh, I'm done. You know, you're the, you're, you're who you're going to be, what you're going to be. And I'm not trying anymore. And it's like, Luke, you stopped trying a season ago, a year ago. Like, it's not a matter of you're still trying. Like, uh, all of you failed him. (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay. I have thoughts about, all the conversations with Jess in this in this um, episode. So you want to you want to start talking about that now? Yeah, let's just do that. Let, let's just issue our, uh, our our so-called chronological timeline because we never we, we always okay. uh, we always we always go off topic anyway. Yeah, we're we're not good at this. Okay, just <laughs> shush. Um, so Liz Liz mentions so Liz is getting married to TJ. Um, and Liz mentions that she told Jess and he, he's not coming to the wedding. Um, so Luke being, by the way, it's, it's interesting to me that Luke does exactly what Jess accuses him of doing last episode. Well, last time they were together, right? Mm -hmm. He's like, people don't ask for your help and yet you offer it anyways. (laughs) Um, so nobody asked Luke to go to New York and confront Jess, um, but he takes it upon himself to do that for his sister. So he goes to New York and starts basically lecturing Jess about how if he doesn't come to his mother's wedding, he's going to regret it. Um, you know, in in the process, says some what I think is hurtful things about Jess's life choices, um, what Jess is doing with his life now. And then he ends it with you owe me. And I think that's the part that really bothers me the most. The you owe me. 
Yeah, we're seeing we're seeing a lot of our favorite concept here of conditional love is uh, rearing its ugly head once more. Exactly. So the you owe me really bothers me because it's like, I understand. So listen, if you wanted to go and tell Jess, like, you're going to regret it if you don't come to your mother's wedding, that's fine. But then, like, the you owe me, what does he owe you exactly? <laughs> like, why? Because you took him in? You yourself said that's what family does, right? Like, yeah. Don't forget, you took him in, but then you threw him out? Yeah, there's, like, a lot more to consider. Like, if Luke's looking for a hero, a hero bar or a medal for taking Jess in, like, Luke also failed him. So Yeah, that's another thing that I think is really important. Nobody ever considers, so everyone just kind of writes Jess off as this guy who's just, especially with that conversation, like you said, after the bachelor party, it was like, you are who you are, I'm done with you kind of thing. It's like, nobody, it's really easy to say that when none of you have considered the fact that he's doing his goddamn best with what you've given him. Yeah. You know, like he is trying his fucking hardest and nobody has acknowledged the fact that he's in pain that you have caused. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I would have, this whole conversation could have gone a lot differently if Luke was like, Hey, Jess, listen, I know your mother wasn't a great mother and she shipped you off and she didn't want you. And now all of a sudden she has her life together and you, you know, she wants you to come to the wedding. And if he had said, like, listen, I know it's really hard. I know. I know. I know. But like instead you go in like accusing him of being an asshole right away. And it's like, that's not fucking fair. (laughs) Yeah, Linda, that was the subtext. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you, Jeffrey. (laughs) But I mean, it's just, it's so annoying to me because it's like nobody, I understand, we've said it before, like everyone kind of glosses over the damage that Liz has done. And part of the reason why we don't like Liz's character for the most part, what we've said is because nobody really, you know, she has this very redeeming storyline where she can just be Liz and get a second chance and be, be quirky, but, you know, without acknowledging the fact that she was pretty abusive as a parent, you know? And now we're just left saying, well, once again, Jeff's is the bad guy because he doesn't, how dare he not want to go to his mother's wedding? Well, did you ever think that maybe his mother, you know, did all these things and that's why he doesn't want to click and go to the wedding? I would like, like, I would like to like, in, I would like to uh, look at that a bit deeper, actually, in terms of um, Liz inviting Jess and Jess initially declining. Um, I think like Liz is kind of okay. If we, if you recall, Liz is kind of okay with her son not coming to her wedding in terms of she's not like, she's not masking her, her hurt with a smile. She's like genuinely like, you know what? It's fine. Doesn't like, he doesn't have to. And just like the way that she kind of dismisses Luke's, um, you know, Luke's frustration at Jess not coming to his own mother's wedding. Did I say funeral? I feel no. like I said funeral. I thought I said, I think I was thinking funeral in my head. It's like a wedding, not a funeral. Anyway, right, no. <laughs> you can see where my brain is at, funeral. <laughs> um, so, no, just the way that Liz is, like, oddly at peace, I guess, with her son not wanting to come. Because she, I think, just the, if you go back and look, if any of you are, you know, re-watching along with us, um, this, just the, the, the look that Liz has on her face when she tells Luke that Jess is not coming, it's like, 
ah, you know, whatever, it's fine. Like, not and not dismissive and, like, masking her pain. It's like, she's, I feel like she's genuinely fine with, with him not coming because she knows, he she knows he's in a bad place that she's partly responsible for. Uh, okay, so yes and no. Okay. So I'm going to agree, but to an extent. So I think, I, I agree. I don't think that Liz is, like, as upset about it as everyone thinks she is. Like, Luke thinking... You know, my sister's probably very upset that you're not coming and he takes it upon himself to go, you know, and be the hero again. Um, I I think probably she is a little hurt, but Mm -hmm. I think she's okay with it because she knows she's fucked up. Yeah, like, okay, maybe she is hurt and isn't like it's it. Her feelings were hurt to some extent that her son declined (laughs) to come to her own wedding, his own mother's wedding. But you're right like like I said I think she also gets it because she he's in a place he's in a bad place that she's that she kind of put him in a little bit yeah so I think part of her is like would it be nice if my son came to my wedding yes but I'm not gonna push it because she knows this is not dumb I feel like you know I think she knows the damage she's caused yeah I think like in this case I think that's why she's so okay with it because she knows the damage she's caused Exactly. Yeah. Then that's all. That's all I was. That's all I was trying to say was she. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Again, (laughs) Um, like maybe she is a little hurt or taken aback by the by the the idea of her son not coming to her wedding. But as Jess says, like, I'll catch the next one. Like he's kind of been on this roller coaster with her his whole life. So I think Liz is easy to not push it, like you said, because she knows that she's failed as a parent like I you know what I mean like I would have liked a bit of a just a a deeper scene at some point with Liz where she's like you know what I uh, you know I (laughs) I fucked up I failed as a parent but I think that's an I think that's obviously implied when Jess arrives in Stars Hall the very first time is that his mother gave up so yeah and I think you know just saying that thing apart from it being a very hilarious line when he says I'll catch the next one I think it serves as a reminder because sometimes it's really easy to forget um, because all we've seen as a viewer is the fun and quirky Liz with TJ. Mm -hmm. I think it's really easy to forget that she's not a saint and that she's done pretty horrible things to her child, you know? That's why I would have liked to just see either seeing the character in, you know, seasons two and three when Jess was around more full time or just like some, I just would have preferred to see some kind of admission of wrongdoing, I guess. Like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. No, for sure. I, and I, I, feel think... like the, I feel like the writers tried to rebrand her way too hard as this quirky Stars Hollow character when in fact, it's like, um, no, she's, I mean, not to say they, not to say they painted her as flawless, but like, I think just some admission, some admission of wrongdoing would have been nice. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, even Luke... If you remember when when Liz first called him to ship um, Jess over, mm-hmm. Luke had this conversation with Lorelai about how, oh, it's Liz. She never thinks, you know? Yeah. And I think even Luke, the reason I'm frustrated is because even Luke is very quick to forgive her. And everyone's giving her the benefit of the doubt, but nobody seems to want to give Jess the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. And that's why I'm 
I'm ultra mad because if you should be giving anyone the benefit of the doubt, it's the freaking kid who was abandoned and, you know, kicked out of his house. But then I think that's hard for Luke because then he has to admit that he was also wrong and didn't make the best decisions when it came to Jess. Yeah, I agree. And I've never actually thought of that until now. Like everyone is quick to give Liz, you know, fourth, fifth, and sixth chances, but Jess, what, got maybe one or two at best? Yeah, and I and I want to point out the um, this tweet that we retweeted and then posted on our Instagram, <laughs> where um, basically somebody posted something along the lines of, like, the town thinking Jess is a menace, and basically the tweet was, the town thinking Jess is the devil or something, and then Jess at any given moment, and it's just him reading books, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, a lot of people were like, you know, he vandalized everything. <laughs> and he stole petty cat. Like, you know, a lot of people were pointing out what I think is, like, angsty teenage behavior. But the thing is, we've said it before, the town was so unwilling to give him the benefit of the doubt um yeah like under different circumstances i think it's just it's just weird to me because yeah i've never really thought of that before because liz just shows up and everyone is just fine with seeing liz again and not well that's, that's the thing i would say it's that liz grew up in the town right and we're made to believe she was kind of a screw up even as a teenager yeah and so the town is very quick to like welcome her back with open arms she's having the the wedding in the town square. Luke is like, ah, well, my sister's getting married again. Of course, I'm happy for her. But it's like, it's so hard for me to see them opening up their arms to her and like, still Jess is this menace who can't be trusted and, uh, you know, still has an attitude problem and nobody has ever stopped to say like, well, maybe he has an attitude problem for a reason. Yeah. Especially considering that Liz like you said, was uh, we're, we're given to assume that she was a screw up when she was a teenager. And I think it's just it's a weird like reversal of fortune with Liz, because with most female characters, like with most mother characters on American television, I would say that the right like any mothers who, you know, don't meet a certain standard are kind of left up to be open to a certain amount of criticism that even the characters themselves um, feel they deserve. And that happens in Ricky and the Flash. In Ricky and the Flash too, by the way. Um, so it's, it's yeah, it's weird that Liz, I guess they just, I guess they just brush, off, brush it off with Liz because, oh, she's quirky and she fits the Star's Hall mold perfectly. Like maybe she didn't fit, fit it that way as, as a teenager, but now that she's an adult and has returned, it's like, Oh hey, Renaissance Fair, cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, which by the way, I'm not down for it. I know the wedding is next week, and I'm gonna. Ugh, anyways. It's weird. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna get into it now. Whatever. Um, but yeah, ultimately, you know, the 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 whole the whole thing was just bothered me a lot. But the line that really really got me was the "you owe me" bullshit, because. He doesn't owe you shit. He was a child and it was your duty to protect him. Yeah. You agree. You agreed yeah. to become his guardian. You agreed to take him in. That means you are his parent. So he doesn't owe you shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know? like it, 
that to me just proves all over again that his like not even love it was like that your protection your guardianship was conditional like as long as you meet these standards these goals that everyone is that everyone is supposed to have regardless and that's a whole other topic but before but before we move on to the other things that do happen in this episode besides uh you know my husband is i wanted to bring up one other thing in regard to uh jess and luke and fitting gender roles because um i did rewatch i did just did i did just rewatch recently the uh, season two episode five where jess first appears and there's a line that struck me in particular that obviously i've heard before but um he, when uh, you know, Lorelai finds Luke on the street with frosted flakes and blah blah blah. Um, he, Luke explains taking taking his nephew in as he just needs someone to he just need, he just needs to get away with get away from his basket case mother and be around someone who will treat him like a man and give him some space. And to me, like if we compare where Jess is now in season four in comparison to where he was arriving at Luke's in season two with this supposed philosophy of he needs someone to give him some space and treat him like a man. Um, obviously, you know, the concept of treating someone like a man or being a man is a very loaded subject because for you know various reasons. But it's interesting to think about in this context of this episode, because, as I said before, uh, you know, Luke was dealing with a great deal of internalized, sh- you know, shame for seeking out self-help books and tapes as a as a as a straight man and then we see you know jess supposedly starting a fight in a strip club even though tj 100 percent started that fight whatever but then luke but then luke kind of blames him for it and that's what leads to this whole scene in the diner at the end where he's like you know what i'm done you know i realized i'm done trying with you you're gonna be who you're gonna be and whatever and that just reinforces how much he's failed him once again um but I, I just I just couldn't help but think about how, you know, Luke brought him to Stars Hollow on this premise of teaching supposedly teaching him how to be a man, and I think Jess kind of maybe opened like opened his eyes a bit to the fact that you know no one really knows what that means like no one really knows how to be a successful adult no one really knows like you know you're not you're not being handed the keys to the kingdom and a and a book with all the rules in it like you like every, every person has to figure it out for themselves pretty much you know so it's just weird to me that luke you know we as much as we can acknowledge that luke grows and shows vulnerability here and going forward it's just like luke and especially liz no one ever acknowledges that you failed him <laughs> you know like especially in terms of like the, the whole especially in terms of like the whole gender roles concept because um like uh, you know Jess never like Jess was always a rebel and that's why I think a lot of people see queer character essence in him so it's like you know what leave him alone (laughs) I think it's really interesting um that you bring up the fact that Luke said he just needs somebody to show him how to be a man because Mm -hmm. Again, what the fuck does that mean, number one? Yeah. Uh, and number two, I think Luke's definition of what it means to be a man has evolved greatly since season two. Yes. Um, especially in this episode. Because, the you know, in season two, he's, you know, 
when he says he just needs to get away from his basket case of a mother, you know, he has very specific rules in the house. You know, you have to go to school, you have to work, you have to do this. You can't, you know, get in trouble, this and that. Um, you know, all those things that he tells him, those unwritten rules that he sets, like, really? Is that what it is to be a man? You know, is that, I think you're really missing the mark <laughs> of of what that means, really, because... What about communicating in an efficient way? What about expressing your emotions? What about acknowledging abuse and anger? Like, these don't fall into the category of being a man, right? Yeah. Like, and then I think it's so interesting that in this episode, Luke is finally able to say that he needs help. So he goes to get a self-help book. You know, not in the best way. He doesn't want to show Andrew. But then it's kind of like at the end of the episode, where he's like, here, I don't need them anymore. Or even when they're talking at the end in the diner and he's like, let's say I have a friend. Let's name him Philip and Ava. He's not showing her that he's, you know, even that. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, so now it's now being a man means this, right? Just because yeah. you've discovered it, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, so all of a sudden you've made this realization that being a man can really mean different things. Oh, okay. So now you want to talk to me about maybe openly communicating. Where was this open communication when I was living with you for two years? Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're not acknowledging that. Now, all of a sudden, because you read one fucking work, you did one workbook on love and had this idiot talking to you on a cassette. <laughs> now it's okay to openly express your feelings. But when I yeah. came to you at the end of season three and told you that I wasn't graduating, but I still need a place to live, and I was vulnerable with you, you kicked me out. Yeah. But now, now you're a man because you're communicating. Like, I don't get it, you know? Yeah. So yet again, it's just a way that exactly the adults in his life have failed him. And I'm not saying, by the way, you have to be perfect. No one's perfect. I understand that we grow. I understand that we learn different things. You know, we get the sense that Luke himself was taught very specific, was taught, you know, that this is what it means to be a man, being closed off and just providing and being hardworking and blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, But you know, at least if you screw up, have the decency or even the courage, if we want to talk about what it is to be a man, have the decency and the courage to say, you know what, I didn't know any better in season three. Well, not in season three, but you know what I mean? I didn't know any better when you needed me, when you told me you weren't graduating and, you know, all this shit was going on with your father. I didn't know any better. And now I understand. And now I want to communicate with you. And I think the beauty, again, jumping way ahead, I think the beauty of season six is that they're able to kind of subtly acknowledge all their faults. Yeah, I think definitely by that point, they've put some, it would be able to, they've been able to put some time and space between all of it. And they've, they can acknowledge, you know, they can acknowledge what happened when he was young from a, a just a better standpoint. Yeah. But I just think it's, it's, um, you know, it's hard to see Luke kind of getting it, but still missing it completely. Like, he yeah. gets it for himself, but still refuses to acknowledge that. Or maybe maybe it's not refusing to acknowledge. Maybe he still doesn't understand. And maybe he still hasn't connected the dots of between what he did or didn't do and, and, you know, how that failed Jess and how that still has implications for Jess's life, you know? Yeah. Yeah, one um, last one last thing I'll say about Luke and Jess in this episode before we move on, because there is other stuff we should talk about. 
um just like in terms of the whole the whole concept of like teach him how to be a man i brought that up because it to me like those lines always like you know stick up my antennas whenever i hear those those things in any tv show or movie because you know as like as a queer person it's just triggering first of all and then for like all other reasons it's just you know i personally know that it's whatever the given gender role states for any you know society or culture it's like queer people just don't fit that mold ever and you spend your whole lives well you spend most of your like childhood and adolescence like either being bullied for it or or turning inward and like criticizing yourself for not fitting that standard and then you know by the time you reach like early adulthood and then later it's like you realize how much all of the other people in their heterosexual nonsense are just kind of so firmly ensconced in these roles and it's just sad and frustrating sometimes because I find that straight people just don't have the opportunity to be illuminated that way and realize that, hey, I can exist outside of outside of these parameters, uh, you know, outside of these extremes. And um, I shared something on an Instagram story um, a few days ago. Uh, non, I don't remember their name, but uh, this a non-binary um, leader and speaker did an interview on a podcast um I think it's called Man. The podcast called Man Enough. It's with uh, one of the hosts is Liz Plank, who wrote the book we recommend all the time called For the Love of Men. Um, and th- um, they just gave a really good speech about how um, you know straight people and people who adhere to, to ge- like the gender binary and gender roles just like they they don't they are not taught or learn they don't they don't learn how to heal wounds in the same kind of way. So it's like they don't ever have that aha moment of, hey, I don't have to worry. I don't have to worry about being ashamed or judged for this anymore. Like they don't ever have those moments the same way that queer people do. So mm-hmm. anyway, all of that to say stuff like, you know, teach me how to be a man. is just interesting to, to dissect because as soon as you dig deeper, it's like, what does that really mean? Like no one really knows. And I wanted to share a poem. Uh, Eleni's rolling her eyes right now. I can't see her, but I know she is. Um, that always comes to mind whenever uh just talking about you know growing up and the way parents are doing their best and sometimes the best is their best is not good enough and whatever so it's by philip larkin and it's called this be the verse and i first read it in a creative writing class uh in cjep and it goes they fuck you up your mom and your dad they may not mean to but they do they fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you but they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old style hats and coats who half the time were soapy, were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. So uh, that just always pops into my head whenever we're talking about how children are failed or how a parent should have done better. It's like they were just doing the best of what they were given and whatever their parents gave them were, was probably not good enough either. So let's just not continue the cycle of misery, in my opinion. Anyway. <laughs> so don't have to easily. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, what should we talk about next? Because there is other stuff. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about Rory's, um, well, where Rory is in this episode, and that's with Paris, who is dealing with her Asher shit. Um yes yes uh oh I was yes thinking, she took I, a breath <laughs> <laughs> um i made a note because about um 
Paris and Asher in, in this episode because I think we do see the only solo scene between them here. I remember last mm-hmm. week I said I don't think we ever see them alone together, but we do, and it's very brief and it's very ambiguous. Um, it's also very uncomfortable for me. Yeah, that too. Um, because I know last week we spoke about what this relationship you know, what we think of this relationship in terms of the power dynamic and the power imbalance between Paris and this man who's in his 60s. And we're reminded in this episode when Paris says, I'm only 19. Um, you know, there's like a 40 plus year gap between them. Um, and it makes me uncomfortable a little bit just because <sighs> the way he. So anyways, for context. Um, Asher and Paris are out having gelato, apparently, and he starts feeling, um, you know, some symptoms that Paris maybe thinks are a heart attack, whatever. She brings him to the hospital and she's freaking out because, you know, she can't get any information and, you know, she's Paris, so she freaks out in general. But she starts telling Rory, I think for the first time, starts really expressing herself and saying, like, I'm 19. I should be out, like, living my life. And... It's the first time she really realizes how old he is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he says, like, I just saw him staring at the ceiling and he looked so pale and blah. So I think it's the first time she really realizes that, like, you're dating somebody who is your grandfather's age. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think it's the first time she starts to realize, like, what the fuck am I doing? You know, like, yeah, I, I, think, think I think she's realizing first, like, she's being confronted with mortality very, <laughs> a little too early on for a, a, um, a, May, a child. Yeah, like a, a little too early on for a May Ming Dynasty romance. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like we said a couple of episodes ago. But I mean, it's just, I think she's also realizing that she spent a very important year, a year where most people in college, like freshmen in college, are first starting to discover who they are and what they like, um, you know, and becoming a little bit more of themselves. She's spent that entire year making her entire personality about this man. And even if he's not going to die and he just has angina, which is nothing, um, you know, it's it's a whole fucking year that she just wasted, in my opinion, on him, you know. Um, and she tells Rory, you must think I'm such an idiot. And Rory's like, no, I don't think you're an idiot. But yes, she does. Um, but I think it's the first time she's really confronted with the fact that, like, you are a fucking idiot. And in her mind, you know, me, I've, I don't think she's an idiot. I think, like, we, we made it especially clear last week. She's been manipulated for sure, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's just reinforced when they have their scene together. So Paris decides that she's going to break things off with him. Mm-hmm. And then he tells her, you know, I think it's a master class in manipulation. He's like, you know, I want to take you to all these places, but I don't think it'll be fair for you because I'll be you'll be bored. But I really do want you to come. And it's like he's telling her all the things that she wants to hear in order to feel special again. That's not just, yeah, for sure. That's not just manipulation, though. That's, like, borderline gaslighting. Yeah, sure. No, 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 absolutely. I think he sensed the fact that she was, she started to feel this way. Like, I I gotta get out of this shit. And Mm -hmm. he was like, how do I rein her back in? (laughs) Like, how do I, how do I get her back on my side where she wants to be with me? You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I think maybe the way that Asher was feeling after, you know, he had an attack of angina and basically proved how old he was to Paris. I think he was like, I think he was having a bit of internal panic where he's thinking, oh, is she still going to want to be with me? Like, I, I, I think he immediately had to twist their narrative in a way that would, like you said, leave him in the position of power. Yeah, I think he saw her starting to realize what was going on in their relationship. Mm -hmm. And he was like, how do I shift it back to me being in control? Yeah, for sure. Like, how do I get her back to where she's happy with me? And, you know, she she still sees me as this charming man who's like an award winning novel. You know what I mean? Like, I think it, it was more about like, how do I get this woman, this young 19 year old back to dating me <laughs> and feeling good about myself? You know what I mean? Yeah, it was like, like how, how to get her back to being oblivious, pretty much. Basically, like she's starting to realize that this is not about, you know, her. <laughs> And mm-hmm. it's about me feeling good getting attention from a 19-year-old. How do, Exactly. You said it perfectly. How do I get her back to, to, to being dumb kind of thing? You know what I mean? And being under my control. Exactly. Um, so he's telling her everything she wants to hear. Like, oh, of course I want you to come to Oxford, but it's not fair for you that I'm going to be in lectures all day. I've, I've written down so many places that I want to show you and experience with you. And she's she's eating it up she's like oh my god he really does care about me he wants to take me to all these places he wouldn't have invited me if it was you know like Paris you're still one of many <laughs> you know what I mean um yeah I kind, still of feels, a- I kind of feel sorry for her though because absolutely don't get me wrong I'm like not I'm not sorry like, I don't pity her but I feel sorry for her because like we've we've grown we've like grown with Paris especially for people who, who were like grew up watching Gilmore Girls like we like you kind of grow up with Paris and I feel like from the from the time that I first watched Gilmore Girls to now I've kind of grown up with her too and it's I feel like I feel sorry for her watching it again now because she's like like she's happy it's a it's obviously an illusion of happiness that's manipulated and twisted by him but like mm-hmm. but like I part of me can't help but feel like I want Paris to be happy like Paris has suffered so much in terms of like she suffered so much at her own hands, I guess. Like she's put herself through so much pressure and yeah, you know, at Chilton and then didn't get into Harvard. No one deserved to get into Harvard more than Paris Geller. And then, you know, <laughs> gets a life coach who disappears and just works so hard at bettering herself, especially in season four, and then falls prey to this man. And I just feel I feel sorry because I want her to be happy and I I know she does kind of find some version of happiness with Doyle later but at this point I just I want her to be happy but I don't I don't want her to be taken advantage of yeah so yeah it's kind of as a viewer you're stuck in a really weird place because you're like open your eyes Paris mm-hmm. you had the right idea of breaking things off but then when you see her kind of melt when he's like yeah I want to show you all these places you're like yeah you deserve to be happy maybe it's okay that you're a little bit oblivious even though as a viewer you feel really uncomfortable with the fact that this 65 year old man is still you know, preying on her, I guess. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's, I'm glad it's the only scene we have with the two of them because it was really odd to watch. And then to top it all off, 
when Asher's granddaughter comes and you're like, this person <laughs> is the same age as Paris. Oh my god, that means like at first I was like, wait, that's I didn't remember. I was like, that's that that's either her the daughter or the granddaughter. I couldn't remember. And I'm like, no, no, yeah. that's the granddaughter. To me, that like snapped it into focus much more than the angina. It was like, oh, he's old enough to have a granddaughter your age. Yeah, I think that was I think that was done on purpose, obviously. Like that was a reminder for the viewer of like, no, no, still very much an awful relationship. Yeah. Still very much not okay. You know what I mean? Um, and I can appreciate them making Rory kind of grossed out. But I kind of wanted to shake Paris and be like, that's his granddaughter, girl. Yeah. It's mm, it's still an, it's still an icky subject. And I'm I would love to pick the writer's brain. The one the writers who were like obviously Image from Paladino and anyone else who wrote on season four of like, what was, what was the end goal here? Like, I think it was obviously to progress character, uh, character, to, pres- to progress Paris's character development, but hmm. to what, it, like, but to what end, like, at what cost? <laughs> like, what, what, what kind of character development do you want her to have? You know what I mean? Do you hmm. want her I don't know. Do you want her to be taken advantage of? Is that character development? Like, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger kind of thing? Like, I don't know what they're trying to do. I said it last week, too. I really don't understand. I still don't understand. <laughs> like, I don't get it. But, no, it's, and it's frustrating, especially, like, once you put the show under a under a magnifying glass, as like we do every week. So it's, like, it's frustrating when presented with the fact of, why? What was the, what was the end goal? Yeah. So I don't know. It's still it's still something that I struggle with. And I'm glad, like I said, it's the only scene that we have with the two of them, because the whole time it was not a long scene by any means. But the whole time I was very uncomfortable, Um, partly because I still don't understand what people see in Asher. Like, really, I don't get it. Um, How much you want to bet that people still like Asher more than they like Jason? Oh, good Lord. Those people need therapy. Anyways, um. (laughs) Let's talk about Lindsay and Dean. Okay, so I was gonna I was gonna ask if you wanted to to touch on that or we'll leave it for next week because I feel like the glimpse we get here is uh, a foreshadow of what's to come next week. So it's definitely a foreshadow, but I do feel like it's important to talk about it because just in those two minutes um, where they do argue. And then the aftermath of Lorelai telling Rory and Rory's reaction, I think, is very telling as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dean and Lindsay, Dean is staying, um, I guess, doing overtime at the inn because he needs extra cash. And Lindsay comes and says, we we're supposed to go out. Why are you still working? And she's and he says, well, we need money. You want a townhouse? You want a car? We need money. And she calls him selfish. And she says. You know, I sit at home all day and I wait for you. I'm bored. And in my head, I'm like, get a job. <laughs> or like the fact that she says, you you promised a call I never do. Like, what? I feel it's... like <laughs> that wouldn't bother you if you had a job. Or but it's, again, it's, we've it's... said it so many times. That's the writers vilifying Lindsay, right? It's Yeah, vilify, vilifying her and also just, I think, showing... And showing the endless consequences of teen marriage and how... I don't even know if it's teen marriage. Um, Well, definitely in this context, it's teen marriage. But I think it's more like 
getting married when you're not ready to get married, Mm -hmm. (laughs) regardless of age, you know, like getting married when you don't have things figured out yet, you know? Yeah. Um, And it's, it's also just to to touch back on, you know, villainizing Lindsay. It's like, um, it's interesting because it's not like it's so basic that it's it's you, there, you there's no other choice but to but to feel like you hate her because yeah the way they wrote it was just per, like so done on purpose because um you know wh- what kind of arrangement in the 21st century exists where you get married at 18 and sh- she stays home and he works like it's not 1954 and even if like even but even if you wanted to stay like that's a privilege like you have to be able to afford to stay home they can't afford that so it's just weird to me that not you know not to uh you know not to deride choosing to stay home or anything like that's fine you have to be able to afford but i mean normally people who choose to stay home can afford it you know, yeah. So like you case, I think it was just kind of some distorted American small town dream where it's like we're gonna get married and he's gonna take care of me and that's that. Yeah, I think it's also like touching, like going back to the fact that when you know Dean in the first season was like, "What's wrong with that?" I think it's nice to have a woman waiting for you at home. So part of me thinks like. Yes, of course, they wrote Lindsay like that because they want viewers not to like her. That's obvious, 100%. But the other part of me is thinking, like, they're banking on the fact that people remember that Dean was the one who loved the idea of that 1950s housewife who stays home, takes care of the house, and has a hot meal waiting for her husband when he comes home, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Because... The way I see it, I'm like, yeah, Lindsay, you're a fucking idiot. Get a job. You want to you want a townhouse like you're bored at home. A job will fix that real quick. You know what I mean? And then the other part of me is like, well, fuck Dean also, because I know what he likes. I know that he wanted a wife at home. So like, like, you both fucking suck. Yeah. And I think I I think the whole dynamic, obviously, between, you know, uh, Rory villainizing Lindsay and everything just it just takes just distorts and takes away from the fact that uh the the true enemy here is men and dean forrester (laughs) yes absolutely and we're going to get into that next episode but i did want to talk about rory's reaction when lorelei tells her that she overheard this argument with suki Mm -hmm. um you know lorelei doesn't know that or as far as we know lorelei doesn't know what's been going on with Rory and Dean in terms of, you know, Lindsay said, I don't want you to see her her anymore. And they've like kind of had a friendship going. Um, You know, as far as we know, Lorelai is not aware of that stuff. So when she tells Rory this, she's really just telling her because like, ooh, gossip. Yeah. But I think Rory's reaction is telling because she's like, oh, well, maybe they'll make up, you know, like, mm -mm." but you know, you, it wasn't that long ago, Rory, that you were also talking about the fact that, like, why doesn't Lindsay get a job? You know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, in my head, I'm just like, Rory, you're loving this shit, aren't you? Yeah. Also, like, Rory, get off it. Like, who you think? Who do you think you're fooling? Exactly. Like, maybe you're fooling your mother because she doesn't know. But we know. 
Yeah. You know. And listen, I don't think at this point in the game, like Rory's like, oh my God, I want them to get a divorce. You yeah. know? But I think she's well, we know she's expressed in the past that like she doesn't agree with their arrangement. Mm-hmm. Um but I think she's also very aware that the last time she was telling somebody that she doesn't agree with their arrangement, Lindsay overheard her. Yeah. So I think she's also being very careful around her mother, not only because, you know, of what happened last time, but I think she's also very aware that Lorelai can see right through her. Mm-hmm. So the minute she mentions like, well, I know that Lindsay should get a job. Like the minute she mentions anything having to do with Dean and Lindsay, her mother's going to be like, well, when have you been talking to Dean? How do you know this about Lindsay, you know? So I think she's being very guarded right now <laughs> because she knows that Lorelai knows her so well. You know what I mean? Yeah, and right and rightfully so that she'd be a little guarded because you <laughs> you don't get to just bad, openly badmouth someone in public, have it backfire, and then continue doing that. Like, I think, especially, yeah, exactly. with, especially someone with Rory's temperament, it's like, okay, we're not going to do that again. <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah, take it down a couple notches, girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think, like you said, again, we're going to get more of that next week, but, um, I just hate both of them right now. Like, I hate Dean and Lindsay right now. I do. Um, I agree. Never, you never get any argument from me. Um, especially, especially Dean and Lindsay is just a big, strong no. Um, I wanted to, I also wanted to talk about, well, we don't see her in this episode, but, um, Emily cancels Friday night dinner, and I find it's just like a fo- I find it's just like a footnote here because obviously there's so much else going on with Lorelai in the inn, uh, Luke and Jess, everything else. So we like we there's no real space for Emily and Richard in this episode, but it's to me it's weird that Emily Emily Gilmore canceling Friday night dinner is just yeah. an after- like almost like an afterthought, and like lo- obviously Lorelai and Rory are concerned because they know something is not right in their marriage, but it's just weird as a viewer. I'm like, Emily Gilmore would sooner cut off her own arm than not hold Friday night dinner. You know, it's, it, yeah. I think it's, I think that is also very telling. And we'll, we'll get more of that uh, in the next two episodes too. But um, I also want to talk about uh, what Lorelai and Rory are watching in lieu of attending Friday night dinner. So as, um, yeah, I was going to bring it up. You didn't. <laughs> As Lorelai explains, she's like has a pile of VHS tapes, um, which I'm surprised that Gilmore Girls didn't like show DVDs a little more, a little quicker. Because even by 2004, I feel like VHS tapes were on the way out um, from what I can remember. Yeah, I think by like that time it was advertised as like both you could have dvd or vhs and then i think around i think 2006 was the, was the last year that vhs tapes were sold if i'm that i could be wrong but i remember reading that once anyhow um lorelei has a bunch of vhs tapes that she has saved because anytime she started watching a movie that she thought rory would also enjoy she's like i'm gonna stop and wait until they can watch it together and so i think she's watched the first 10 minutes of 12 movies which i can relate to mm-hmm. because I've also been, like, in a place where I'm like, oh, my mom will, will like to watch that. We should, like, save it and watch it together. Especially over the last year being at home all the time, there was a period of time in 2020 where my mom and I watched a movie together every single night from about June until November. So anytime I found something that we would enjoy together, I'm like, save it. Can't touch it. 
So, and my dad, and my dad is the complete opposite. He will watch something shamelessly without us and then say, oh yeah, I watched that this morning. It was good. So, uh, we, we don't, we don't acknowledge him. However, <laughs> anyway, all of that to say the movie that Lorelai and Rory choose to watch on this Friday night without a dinner is Fatso written and directed mm-hmm. by Anne Bancroft. And I had to, and I just, because we're, you know, analyzing and discussing, I had to look this up to see what a movie called Fatso entails, especially written and directed by someone like Anne Bancroft was very confusing. So yeah, the whole premise is really weird. <laughs> so for those who don't know, and I didn't know until this afternoon, uh, Fatso is a 1980 film uh, written and directed by Anne Bancroft, her only such credit. Um, and it's and it stars uh, Dom DeLuise, who is a famous who was a um, famous comedian, and he's also or he was the father of actors David DeLuise and Michael DeLuise, who both appear in this episode. I don't think so. I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, David DeLuise plays TJ, and his real life blo- his real life brother plays TJ's brother. Um, anyway, all of that to say, Fatso currently holds a 33% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, the plot basically consists, or as according to Wikipedia, the film examines the subject matter of obesity, addiction, family, self-acceptance, and singlehood. Uh, okay. Uh, just based on the poster itself and the fact that it came out in 1980, I'm going to guess that it's a bit dated. Um, so there is a section on Wikipedia entitled Impact, which reads, this film was also reviewed in the psychiatric monograph, The Eating Disorders, which concluded that the film veers between comedy and pathos as man, as a man discovers fat is the only sin in America. They approvingly note the motivation for overeating and binge dieting are lampooned and medical consequences are elaborated in comedic fashion. The film marked a turning point in the lives of of actors Richard Karen and Paul Ziegler, who played Deloitte's obese chubby checker support group members. Both actors lost large amount of weight in the years subsequent to making of the film. So I'm thinking it was like trying its best to be maybe like to eliminate fat phobia in the year 1980. And I don't think, I don't think it did that. <laughs> well, I think it was trying very hard to be woke. Um, yeah. Before woke was turned. <laughs> And I think it failed because just from the like five second clip that we see them watching, the <laughs> film opens with people yelling fat, fat, fat. <laughs> so uh, not great. And which is really surprising, by the way, because Anne Bancroft is an Academy Award winning actress. And I think she's also won a couple of Emmys and BAFTAs. Yeah. So um it just goes to show that sometimes, like, you could be a great actor and producing and writing and directing, not your thing. <laughs> yeah, and let's, I think it's, it was maybe, like, maybe it's just, maybe not a silly project, but maybe it was just, like, something she did thinking it was, like, like, obviously it was a comedy film, so she thought it was, like, just something fun to do on the side of acting. But as Wikipedia says, it's her only such credit as... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, writer and director of a feature film so I don't know to me I don't associate an actress of Anne Bancroft's caliber with a f- film called Fat So <laughs> I don't yeah. know it just doesn't really line up for me <laughs> yeah and also the title not great <laughs> no <laughs> I think that in itself is a little dated uh, maybe in 1980 yeah. or even until recently I guess it was normally normal to refer to someone as a fatso I'm, I don't know but 
Don't I'm do that. I've heard that term. I feel like it was just, I thought it was just like a slang term. I didn't, like, I've never really given it much thought, but Fatso as a movie title is not, uh, not appealing. Not great. <laughs> no, no, not great. Um, anything else you wanted to discuss for this episode? Um, I made a note about uh, heterosexual nonsense. Doesn't even begin to cover this strip club, uh, I think. Yeah, I well, this club, club but... <laughs> I mean, well, we can talk about the fact that I think it's very odd to be going to your wife, to your mother's husband's bachelorette party, a uh, bachelor party, I should say, mm-hmm. um, especially if it's going to be at a strip club. Uh, but, you know, he's a good sport, I guess, and he goes. But, yeah, mud wrestling, come on. <laughs> that, yeah, there's a, I don't even have words to express it's, I'm gonna pass. <laughs> it was uh, it was really gross. Shall I share a story of the one time I attended a bachelor party? Stop it! Yes, please. Um, so it was nothing like a strip club or anything like that. Um, five years ago now, it was 2016. My cousin got married, and I was invited to her fiance's bachelor party, and um, I'm pretty close with both of them. Her her, her husband tutored me in math for three years in high school. And before that, we had always been pretty close um, when I was younger and just, at, you know, family functions and et cetera. So I was invited. I don't think I think I was invited out of courtesy and not I don't think anyone expected me not to go. But I think I, everyone thought it was big of me to go because I didn't know anybody except him. And it was all of his friends who were putting it together and um you know as a budding young gay it was not uh, not really my scene i guess we could say uh, <laughs> so it was it was in downtown montreal it was like this beer tour of montreal in which a tour guide led us on led us through like different uh bars and taverns with different kinds of beers so it was like a beer tasting i don't really know how to describe it we just we just went to like different bars and upscale kind of upscale places and tasted beers and I've never been much of a drinker in general but uh beer is a big no for me I'm waiting for the day that we as a society stop pretending that beer tastes good yeah Um, I don't get it either so there was one like I really tried (laughs) like I tried because we got little like sample glasses every single one and there was like the first few times I drank it and then there was one where I'm just like tasted it, didn't like it at all, so I didn't finish it. And the tour guide, who was a woman, but she was like, kind of, I don't know, would get like, I don't know if she took it personally, but she, she was like taken aback if I didn't finish my samples. I'm like, okay, fine, I'll finish my freaking sample. Oh, and I'm then glad. it got. Did she make herself? I don't know, but she was like, she would just give me a look of like, you're not gonna finish. Maybe it was like as if I was just the child in a group of older adults. I don't know, but it was weird. And it got, but it got to a point where. I was so I was sitting next to my cousin's then fiance now husband and I just couldn't drink it I'm like this is dis- I didn't say it out loud I'm thinking like this is disgusting so so she, like the tour guide turns away to like look at something like turns her her back to me essentially and without even thinking I grab my glass pour it into his and that's that so 
I didn't drink it, but as far as she knows, I did. And then she's like, oh, Steve, who's my cousin's husband, was like, oh, you didn't finish. And he just, like, looks at me. And I'm like, choose your words wisely. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Just take one for the team. Yeah. So, anyway, all that to say, Jeffrey and beer do not mix. But for years thereafter, everyone was like, like, everyone on my mom's side of the family was like, you know, it was, like... I'm just still so surprised that he went to that bachelor party. You know, he could have just easily not gone, but he chose to go. And like, I don't know. Everyone just championed me for attending the bachelor party. I end up leaving early because they were going to go out to bars thereafter. So like we went out to dinner to this disgusting Putin place, a whole other story. But after the, after dinner, I was like, okay, bye. <laughs> and bye, was, not for me. Yeah. But yeah, it cost no. me like, oh, it cost me like over a hundred dollars during a time where I like had no money as a broke student. So that was, uh, financially was not a great decision, but. Yeah. I think that's a problem with a lot of these events. Um, I remember once we got invited, my sister-in-law and I got invited to a bachelorette party of, a uh, my cousin's cousin basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, really sweet girl. Love her. So I was very happy to be invited in general, but it was just like, the person that her friends were obviously throwing the bachelorette party and the itinerary that they gave us, I think we were like, we went to the dinner and that's it because mm-hmm. the itinerary that they gave us like dinner, then they were, no, they went to like a pole dancing class. Oh dear. Skip that. <laughs> then they went to, um, and like all these things you have to pay for. Right. So like the pole dancing class was like 60 bucks. Then dinner, we ended up splitting it between 14 people. It still came up to like $70 a person. Jesus. Then they were going to go to like a bar and then they were going to go to a club. I'm like, listen, it's enough. It's a lot. I can't do this. And oh, then they were going to have like a mixologist class, which was another hundred dollars. I was like, no, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm sorry. Uh, Straight people, I love many of you, but your whole your whole culture of weddings and bachelor parties and all of this costs money, and it's gonna be a no for me. <laughs> a no for me too. Can't uh, can't do it. Or at least if I'm paying that much money, make it something enjoyable. You know what I mean? It's not everyone that wants to do a strip dancing class. Yeah, exactly. Like that to me is a little weird for a bachelorette party. But you know, you do okay. you, and I'll do me. <laughs> Listen, if you're happy, that's fine. But don't be insulted when people don't come. That was one thing the pandemic like really clarified for me was there's a diff like there was a difference between going somewhere because I want to be there and I love and I like the people and you know the money like the the money it costs to be there is like an afterthought. But then I realized, but like then I realized with the pandemic, it was if I if I'm only going because it's, it's a social obligation, it's the right thing to do, and it costs so much money. It's like is that really worth it? No. Uh, it's not. <laughs> I have one more thing I want to ask you. Yes. Before we wrap this up. So at the end of the episode, Luke finds Lorelai and he's telling her about uh, Liz's wedding. She's getting married in the square. And he tells her, um, you know, you need to blow off some steam. You're too stressed about the inn. Why don't you come to the wedding with me? Yeah. And she says, oh, okay. And then he says, you know, I'll meet you at your house and we'll walk over together. Okay. She's like, yeah, no problem, whatever, you know, like, blah, blah, blah. Is that a date? No, and I feel like, and I've thought this way since I watched this for the first time. I'm like, that was not, that's not, that's not where Luke and Lorelai went out for the first time. Like, that to me. So I agree with you. I don't think him asking her, like, I think in his head, he was very clear. 
Yeah. He's like, yeah, she knows we're going out, but he's an idiot, so no. But I think, like, next week's episode, we're going to have a little bit more to say on that. But I think, you know, when he originally asks her and then he goes back to the house and he's like, here, I don't need them anymore. I think in his head, he's really like, yes, I'm going on a date with Lorelai. And in my head, I'm like, Luke, you have to tell the other person it's a fucking date first. Yeah, I think it was like big baby <laughs> steps. <laughs> Oh my god! Yeah, it was so like be- real. Ba- it was real. It was real baby steps, I think, because he. I don't think he would. I don't think he was. At, he was at the stage where he could be like, "Let's go out to dinner." It was like, "Hey, you're stressed. Let's come to come to my sister's wedding with me." Like, mm, no. Yeah, I understand, but I think he really thought like, "I don't need these books anymore because look, I did it. I asked her on a date." Whereas okay. everyone else is like, "That's not a fucking date." <laughs> But anyways, we'll we'll talk about the rest um, next episode. Where can they find us? Luke Danes is doing his best. Uh, they can find us on all the socials, on Twitters at Gilmore Podcast, on Instagram at Gilmore Girls Podcast. And you can, not all the socials, we have two socials. <laughs> and you can email us, uh, should you so desire, gilmorepodcast at gmail.com. Perfect. And we will see you next time. Yes. Thank you for listening. Bye.